Coming up this hour, we're talking teachers, cyber attacks, and we're joined by Adam Graber to talk theology and technology. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. I was stretching while I said that, if that sounded weird. I am so ready for this show. Let's go. It's Monday. My name is Ian Simpkins, joined by Brian Fromm, usually, most of the time. A couple of things before we get rolling here. First, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get podcasts. I want to start off first saying something, Brian, if it's okay. Yep. Sometimes every once in a while, people will make comments or observations at the very least, like, hey, I dropped it in the middle of the show and it didn't sound like you were talking about the Bible. Uh, <laughs> that sometimes will happen. Sometimes Brian and I are talking about theology or the church or pastoral ministry. And uh, honestly, sometimes we're just talking about stuff that's happening in the world. And he and I right. are both doing our best to kind of bring our Christian worldview, our pastoral experience to that issue. But sometimes it's just something that's happening in media or technology or politics. So if you drop in at any given point, you might not hear what sounds like a sermon per se or biblical exegesis, but it's our attempt to kind of engage with stuff that's happening in the world in real time. Is that, is that a fair assessment, Brian? That's really fair. Was that a uh, a comment that you received or you just kind of uh, helping people understand the show? Because, uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's very fair. In fact, I would say much more of the show is driven by current events and other things than than sermonizing, if you will. Well, it's not always just current, too, because we've often kind of held the tension like we're not a we're not news anchors. So it's not usually like breaking news. And sometimes it's something a little more evergreen. But, yeah, it was a couple of couple of comments, something else I saw online where it's like these guys sometimes don't talk about the Bible. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's true. It's very true. (laughs) That is sometimes how the and again, that's totally fair if that's not your jam. But, yeah, kind of our goal and hope is to create a space where we can talk about hopefully the stuff that's common to a lot of us and that could be parenting or business or politics or culture. And, you know, we'll stumble through it a lot of times, but uh, just to say it again, I feel like we should say it a lot. Like that's kind of our heartbeat for the show. And uh, a couple of articles that probably, I don't know, maybe there's a sort of biblical undertone to them, uh, two kind of more recent event type things. The one hits real close to home from uh, insider radio. Why don't you tell us what's going on there, Brian? Yeah, Insider Radio, uh, there was a cyber attack, and not just a random cyber attack, but it struck the radio again. This time, Salem Media got hit. What? Uh, if you don't know who Salem Media is, that is our umbrella organization. That is who we work for. Uh, so it says media companies have been enticing targets for hackers trying to get past digital firewalls and set off ransomware attacks that hold company computers hostage until money, pay, money is paid or the attack can be fended off. Salem Media Group disclosed at the end of last week that it had become the latest radio group to fall victim. And so you read this article, and apparently uh, they have been targeting radio stations. And you and I have not been going in. We've thankfully been able to do these from home. But everyone who's up at the studio says uh, it is really wreaked havoc up there, uh, Internet-wise. And and these are things that I, I – this is where my naiveness comes out. I tell you this all the time. Like, this is where I feel naive. Like, I'm like – who does this? What? How does this work? Like, I never quite get it, but it is apparently to the radio station has caused a good amount of uh, consternation and problems over the last uh, week to 10 days. Have you ever been this close to a cyber attack? Like, I, I can't imagine. No. Churches are like a real hot commodity for hackers. 
No, not at all. I've never been nearly this close. Uh, you know, the only problems I've ever had, right, is a random virus that might pop up because, you know, however, and you got to go make sure that your your firewall is OK. But this is a whole nother level. And then the article goes on. Like you said, it's at Inside Radio that this is a growing problem in radio. Uh, an attack on Urban One last year cost the company more than a million dollars. Intercom. Uh, Intercom was broken into and they were demanded a $500,000 ransom. Like this kind of stuff's a big deal. And so unfortunately, uh, our parent company is dealing with that as we speak. It's kind of wild too, because I don't know, this is the kind of stuff that I feel like we've seen in movies since we were kids. But again, it's just never, I've never been that close to it. No, does, not it, at all. does, it does it give you, and you mentioned a number of times on the show, your kind of naiveness, at least in this particular area, does this like, raise the water level of concern for you? Or are you like, whoa, that's crazy, but back to business as usual for you? Yeah, more like that. And I like <laughs> I like my naive world. <laughs> and so, uh, but I did like when our producer was telling about us about it last week, I was like, what are you talking about? It, it, it really kind of blew my mind. And I do think you need to make sure, I'm not so naive as not to make sure that I don't have, you know, the proper precautions being taken and stuff like that. But uh, like you said, to this level uh, is pretty wild and pretty destructive. Yeah. All right. So I, I mentioned that I have two articles. Uh, for a lot of people, you're aware that in a lot of parts of the country, today is the first day of school. I saw people right. still posting photos and getting fresh haircuts and, and all that stuff. I cannot even imagine. Again, I've mentioned it before on the show. I have a one and a half and a two and a half year old, which brings its own set of stresses for sure. <laughs> but we don't really have to navigate that right now. Brian, I know that you do, but right. this article I saw in a lot of ways echoes a lot of what I was reading. It simply says teachers organize mass six days, resignations and potential strikes over schools reopening. What's going on here? Yeah. Like you said, it's the beginning of school. My daughter, who's a high schooler today is the first day of school for freshmen. She goes back officially tomorrow. So tomorrow's her first day of school. And it's at least the first three weeks are going to be remote. We're preparing for much longer than that. My other, uh, my elementary school and middle school kid, uh, children go back the first of September. They pushed it to the first of September. And so, like you said, it's a mm -hmm. very different year and it's very different for teachers. And what right. this article at Forbes is talking about is, uh, it's one thing for school districts to come up with plans. This is what we're going to do. It's another thing for teachers to say, we feel comfortable doing it. And, mm. and so really across the country, uh, this article is talking about how teachers are organizing mass sick days, resignations, potential strikes. And uh, I actually had a conversation with someone just this weekend about uh, what I would do or what do I think about teachers not wanting to teach? Because that is one of the problems even in our local school districts here. Uh, and I'm like, you know what? Uh, the vast majority of people that I know currently uh, are not back in their offices. They're not back in uh, whether they work downtown in a business or they're working at a church, radio station, whatever else it might be. And uh, for teachers, you, you got to cut them some slack if they're going, I don't feel comfortable being in a room for hours a day with 20 students or whatever else. And so I know there are some people uh, who are taking kind of a sideways look at this going, oh, are they using COVID to... Uh, to negotiate things and this. And I don't think so. All the teachers I know want to be in school with kids. They don't want to be doing remote learning, but also yeah. a lot of them are scared and, and rightfully so. And so I think this article really summarizes how this is a problem across the country right now where teachers are going, hey, I just don't feel comfortable right now. And, and schools are needing to say, okay, what do we do with this? And quite frankly, we see with some of the schools that have opened early here, college campuses and 
all the way down through high schools and elementary schools, there's already some hotspots. There's already some problems across the country. Uh, and so it is something. And so, you know, I think if I think we've got to be able to cut teachers some slack here uh, who are wrestling with what do I feel comfortable with? Because every teacher I know longs to be back in with some normalcy in the classroom, but is also trying to go. But is it safe for me? Is it safe for my family? So 380,174, that's the number of children who have tested positive for COVID in the U.S. since this began. That's a lot. That's a that's a sizable number. And I'd, I'd be curious to know, I know we're almost out of time, time, Brian, but what would you say would be the other side of that coin? What, like, what's the what's the pushback? I've seen people post things like, why don't teachers value in-person education the way that we thought they did? You know, like snarky stuff like that. But what what would you say or what would you guess maybe is the uh, the other side of the coin here? From what I said, I think the other side of the coin is, hey, you're essentially an essential worker. You know, people are going in, nurses are going in, police officers, grocery store people. Like, we get that you're scared. We're going to take every precaution we can, but then we need you to do this. My guess is that that's the other side of the coin, whereas there are other professions that have a lot more flexibility that allows you to work from home. Uh, that says, you know, if we think it's best for our kids to be in school, then we need the teachers to do it. And if you can't do it, then we replace you. That's not where I go with this. But when you ask Mm. for the other side of the coin, my guess is, and I know it's not just my guess. I've heard that from people. I think that's the counter argument. I got Uh, you. Well, we'd love to know what you think. This is uh, up at our Facebook page. If you want to drop us a comment there or a private message, what do you think about the teachers uh, organizing in this way, or what are you hearing from other parents or other families? We know that this is a complicated issue, but we would love to hear your perspective and feedback. Coming up next, Adam Graber wrote a new article for Christianity Today entitled, It's Not Enough to Broadcast a Service, Churches Need to Foster Community. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things before we get rolling here. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, also at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing on those platforms, does somehow magically, mystically help us out in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled for not one, but two segments today. We have Adam Graber on the show. Welcome to the show for the first time, sir. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you take just a a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so I I work with a crew called Faith Tech. Uh, They're based out of Toronto, but I'm here in Chicago. And uh, we're really focused on bridging the gap between faith and technology by helping Christians in the tech ecosystem uh, steward their skills to glorify God. And uh, I also host a podcast called Device and Virtue with a buddy of mine, Chris Ridgway. And so, yeah, we talk about, we argue about faith and technology and figure out how it's relating to everyday life uh, together. So we just talked about TikTok and uh, we've been talking about the coronavirus and how COVID is affecting churches uh around the world right now yeah awesome and adam we'll jump off there although i have so many questions for you about technology here but uh uh, christianity today you have an article up called it's not enough to broadcast a service churches need to foster community before getting into that solution of community could you give us kind of a uh what you're seeing as what's going on in the church right now is all of us have had to go virtual all of us online is it going well is it not going well (laughs) what's kind of your assessment of what you're seeing yeah, that's a great question. I so I really think about uh, 
technology and the church in sort of technological terms these days. So I think the church building has long been sort of this social media platform for the church. Mm. And we've used the church building to bundle together the worship service, community, and pastoral care. Mm. And now during COVID, you have the internet is the new church building. And so all of a sudden, these uh, these three things have been unbundled and uh, worship and community and pastoral care are all happening in different spaces. Mm. And so we as church, we as churches, as pastors are trying to navigate this. And I think I think churches are doing really well. I think we're in a technology boom in the church We're we're having to digest uh, all this new technology and figure it out. And I see a lot of creativity happening uh, but there's a lot of concern as well, and I that's understandable. But I mm. think I think I have a lot of hope for what the church is doing in this uh, era right now, for sure. I, I want to highlight something you just mentioned. You you said that you're seeing a lot of creativity. Do, do you have any examples that come to mind of of churches who are doing the best they can to kind of course correct in this weird cultural moment we're in right now? Yeah, you know, I think um, there have been some examples that I've seen. Uh, there's there's a church uh downtown chicago that um they have a long tradition of uh celebrating birthdays and anniversaries in their church and now they've gone online and they had to kind of figure out a way uh for people to stand up and be seen online and so they really created you know a 1 to 2 minute segment where everybody emailed in a photo and their birthday and and it was it just became a media segment uh, that was part of the church service as a way to mm. transition from what was in person before to an online context. But, you know, churches are doing um, really low tech things, too. Like they're going back to phone trees and they're right. distributing uh, uh, lists of, of names and connecting with those people, um, not just the pastors or the or the church staff, but people within the church are, you know, finding, uh, collecting numbers and and reaching out to people so that we make sure that everybody's getting cared for in this crazy time. Hmm. You highlighted at the beginning of your article some Barna research that seems to say that for the Sunday morning worship service and that move online, it says nearly a third of churchgoers have stopped attending church. Yeah. I'm just curious, why do you think that is? Yeah. And that really is kind of where I came at it with, with this article was really looking at, I think a lot of people are um, looking for community and they're looking for pastoral care. And with the church service online, what happens during that church service is one thing. Mm-hmm. But when we ha- when we were in the church building, there were other things that were happening outside of the 60-minute service. And that was the community and the pastoral care, the prayer at the side of the church. Um, and And so people had an opportunity to connect. And that, I think, has gotten lost in the transition online. Hmm. Uh, for a lot of churches. And so I wanted to highlight for pastors and church staff a way to think about and and realize, oh, that's what's getting missed. We've spent a lot of time uh, focusing on getting the church service online, but we also need to get community and pastoral care online in another way. And we have to figure out where that's going to happen and how. Hmm. And I think, uh, I th- so I think going back to uh, why people are, uh, not attending that they aren't getting that pastoral care and the the community that they were getting and i think they're missing that and they've just said well if that's missing that's not 
that's why I was going to church it for a bit. That was a big reason I was going to church and now uh, it's missing. So yeah, I, I think it's tragic. I think there's a lot of other reasons too. I don't think those are the only ones, but um, I think that's worth uh, adding, adding to our thinking as we're thinking about the reasons for that. Yeah. See, and I think a lot of pastors would find that interesting because for better or for worse, it feels like a lot of pastors I know really believe that people come ultimately either for the sermon or the singing or the environment. And it sounds like what you're saying is it's actually way more embodied. It's way more communal than maybe a lot of people realize. Like, what, what do you see the long-term effects of this five, 10 years down the road? Mm, that's a great question. If I could predict the future, uh, I would be making more money than I am now. <laughs> uh, so I think the long-term effect is, like I said, there's a technology boom for churches right now. And I do think that there's a broader awareness that we need to move into a hybrid church model mm. that is incorporating um, online services and, and bringing into the service people who are not in the service but are watching online. How can we make them visible? How can we make them present uh, in the service in in new and surprising ways so that even when uh, the gathered church can get back together uh, after COVID, that, that there's a lot of people who haven't been attending church for a long time for a lot of reasons. It may be health reasons. It may be anxiety reasons, whatever the case may be. Mm. But those people suddenly are, everyone's feeling the same way they're feeling. They're, they're experiencing what those people have felt for a long time. And a lot of churches are now able to incorporate them in a new way. So I'm hopeful that um, people with disabilities will be able to connect into church through hybrid church models in a new way. Mm hmm. With like the minute we have left just in this segment, I'm curious as a tech guy, is there something that you use for meetings or for connecting with friends better than Zoom, right? Even your article talks about being Zoomed out and all of us yeah, are on Zoom. Yeah. Is there anything you you tech guys use that you find better than Zoom? You know, I was just on a call a couple weeks ago with a group called uh, Alter, and they are at alterlive.com. And they are working on a church-specific solution for churches that are kind of around five or 600 or less. Hmm. Um, not necessarily big churches, although I think they do have the opportunity for uh, serving large churches. But I think, I'm really hopeful for some of the things they're doing. They've been in beta testing, and they're just starting to roll out. So they're brand new. I would love to flood their website with uh, inquiries and orders, because I think what they're doing, they're really thinking about it theologically awesome. and, and they're thinking about some ways that we can, uh, bring people, uh, that are outside the church into the church, uh, that, and, and participate, hmm. um, and not just watch. Yeah. If you're just joining us, Adam Graber is a director at faith tech and the co-host of a podcast called device and virtue. He's also the author of a new article at Christianity today called it's not enough to broadcast a service. People need to foster community, and he's going to stick around for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of points of house cleaning. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles there. You can send us a message if you have ideas for future shows. You can also find us at 1160hope.com or wherever it is you podcast. We're joined for a second segment 
by Adam Graber. He is the director at Faith Tech and a co-host of a podcast called Device and Virtue. He wrote a new article published today at ChristianityToday.com entitled, It's Not Enough to Broadcast a Service, Churches Need to Foster Community. And one of the things, I actually had a conversation with a mentor of mine this morning about this idea of embodiment and how like MacArthur's in the news a lot right now and people have all sorts of opinions about whether or not we should be meeting physically, how important is meeting physically? Is it that we just simply socially miss each other or is there something deeper, more theological going on there? Can you talk to me a little bit more about this notion of presence and embodiment and how we navigate what we're all sort of facing right now? Absolutely, Ian. Yeah, there's, uh, I think, a common way that we think about uh, the church and being the church is we look at Jesus, and that makes sense. And we we look at at that and say, Jesus uh, came as an incarnate person to be with us in an embodied way. And therefore, the church should also be uh, an embodied uh, manifestation of of. Jesus. Hmm. And I want to totally affirm that, first of all. And in our move to an online internet-based church service, uh, that has been lost. And that is a real loss. Um, But I also want to recognize that the Holy Spirit is also part of how we think about what the church is. So we think about the church as an embodied uh, incarnate space, but we also think of it as a spiritual reality too. Mm. And COVID has afforded us this opportunity to think about the church from the spiritual uh, side of things in a deeper way. And and I think that's an opportunity that pastors have uh, preaching right now to really emphasize the spiritual connection that we have, not only uh, with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus, but also with each other. And so we think about, um, we, and I think this, this question is also um, something that we, we intuitively recognize because we think about um, Jesus and his presence in communion. We think about uh, the presence in the body of believers where two or three are gathered. We think about the presence of Jesus in scripture. We think about Jesus' presence in a pastor's visit hmm. uh, to someone. And all of those are, different forms of Jesus presence. And, and so when we go online, it's not that Jesus isn't present. It's not that the Holy Spirit isn't present, but the Holy Spirit is present in a new or different way uh, than we've experienced being in person uh, at that church in the church building. And so, you know, it's not that it's not that we don't want to be in church. And I think, I think as soon as we are are safely able to do that, that's that's the direction we want to go. But there are opportunities right now to connect and gather together as the body in a spiritual sense that I think is really important to to remember and keep in keep in our minds. That's good. So as we think about online campuses and online church that we've all had to do, some of some churches were doing it already. Some of us had never really gone down that road. Uh, could you give some thought to how could churches think through technology as a strategy? Like now that everything's kind of changed going yeah. forward, how can they think in those terms? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah. So a lot of churches, I think, are are thinking about technology 
and they're saying, well, we're starting an online campus. We have, we might have multiple campuses or maybe we just have one, but we're thinking, okay, now we have an online campus. And I want to um, challenge pastors and church leaders to think about it, not as a church ministry, but as a church strategy. And what I mean by that, so churches today often talk about uh, a communications strategy and I want to. I want them to think about uh, technology like they think about communications, because you don't. You don't have a communications ministry. Your communications is amplifying all of your ministries, mm. and in the same way, technology doesn't need to be a ministry. It can amplify all of your ministries, and so it's instead of being this vertical ministry, it can be this horizontal strategy that is amplifying what you're doing across uh, all of your campuses or on your one campus in the multiple ministries that you have. Hmm. And I think that can be a valuable way to start thinking about uh, how churches can amplify what they're doing and, and take advantage of the technology boom that they, that's going on right now. That's a really good note, too, because it, it feels like sometimes in church world, the temptation is to take good things and make it ultimate, you know, like and that's we do that in life in general. And I, I'd love to hear right. from your perspective as someone who uniquely sort of fits both in a theological world, but also the technological world. And I don't think there's a lot of people wired exactly like you to speak to both of those perspectives. <laughs> like what how do you help coach and shepherd people through? innovation in a way that's healthy, but not obsessive, right? A lot of times churches like just, it can become a focal point. Like we have to have this screen or this technology or this web platform or whatever. Can you speak a little bit to some of the tension of how we innovate well, but to not let it become everything we do? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what we're think what we were talking about maybe in the last segment where churches are trying low tech solutions to, create right. community and connection and and to think okay we we're in this technological moment where we're thinking okay what's the technology solution to this hmm. but the reality is there might be a non-technological solution and and let's expand our thinking beyond just the internet as a way of solving the problems uh, of pastoral care and community and even the worship service like how can we expand our thinking and think more creatively about that um yeah, with with the innovation, uh, I think it is it is tempting to mm. look at technology as a tool and and say, how can I use this tool to accomplish my goal? Uh, but I also want to ask the question of um, who are we as we use this tool? Right. What right. What's the identity that we have as the church? Um, right. And and that goes back to this idea that. That for churches, as they're thinking about who they are, as they think about um, what they're doing and and the unique character that their church has, how can they how can they pursue that identity of who they are, hmm. um, and not just let that uh, not just let the tool drive where their church is going, hmm. um, and so yeah, really thinking about. Um, innovation from a from starting from a standpoint of what is the goal that I'm 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 going for who do I who do I want this church to be who do right. we want to be as a people and how then can can technology uh reinforce that rather than direct that for us that's really good 
That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Adam Graber. He is a director at Faith Tech and a co-host of the podcast Device and Virtue. You can learn more at faithtech.com and deviceandvirtue.com. You can also follow him online at Adam Graber. He's the author, the author of a new article today out of Christianity Today. He says it's not enough to broadcast a service. Churches need to foster community. Adam, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Appreciate it, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. His name is still Brian Fromm. And boy, oh boy, are we glad that you are here. We have a Facebook page. You can find it. There's a podcast. You can find that, too. I'm not going to waste any time on that. We would appreciate any feedback, though, or any interaction, subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that helps us out a whole ton. And uh, super grateful for those of you who have already done that. Here is an article, Brian, that a buddy of mine sent me. We've been kind of talking about, I mean, we've been talking about a number of things lately, but he sent me this article that uh, I thought was pretty fascinating. And I'd love for you to just kind of get us into it and then we'll, we'll pick it apart a little bit. Yeah, so it starts, it's written by Parker Crutchfield, an associate professor of medical ethics, humanities and law at Western Michigan uh, University. Uh, it starts by talking about how COVID-19 is a collective risk, meaning that you and I and other people were dependent upon other people wearing masks, keeping social distance, whatever else. He says, when someone chooses not to follow public health guidelines around the coronavirus, they're defecting from the public good. It's the moral equivalent of the tragedy of the commons. If everyone shares the same pasture for their individual flocks, some people are going to graze their animals longer or let them eat more. Uh, than their fair share. Selfish and self-defeating behavior undermines the pursuit of something from which everyone can benefit. So that's the Mm -hmm. point. Um, And he goes on to say, my research in bioethics focuses on questions like how to induce those who are non-cooperative to get on board with doing what's best for the public good. Hmm. To me, he writes, it seems the problem of coronavirus defectors could be solved by moral enhancement, like receiving a vaccine to beef up your immune system, People could take a substance to boost their cooperative pro-social behavior. Could a psychoactive pill be the solution to the pandemic? He says it's a far out proposal that's bound to be controversial, but one I believe is worth at least considering given the importance of social cooperation in the struggle to get COVID-19 under control. That's I've never heard of this. So I'm going to put that out there that I thought when it said morality pill, I thought that that was like a euphemism. That was like a it was just kind of uh, painting a picture of something. But no, he's literally saying, uh, could there be a pill out there? And so uh, this is really something that I've never heard of before. Yeah, it's a conversation. It's interesting that he sent it to me because I remember back in college, we uh, we did a case study with they were, they were examining the brains of like a number of famous serial killers mm-hmm. and they were curious if there was any pattern of deficiency neurologically speaking among these, you know, notorious uh, killers. And they, I can't remember the details because it was so long ago, but they, they did actually find in this particular study that these 10, 15 notorious murderers all were missing or had damaged part, the same damaged parts of their brain. Mm. And they were proposing, Oh, what if, part of morality actually is neurological. What if it is biophysical and the notion that can we hold people who are maybe cognitively unable to actually perceive morality in the same way that we are? Can we hold them to the same level of accountability? And I, and I've always found that to be weirdly fascinating, especially, you know, 
And as pastors, you know, obviously we're concerned with topics of morality and ethics, but I thought it was really interesting to kind of come at it from the perspective of what, what if people are physiologically, neurologically incapable of the same level of moral behavior than maybe the rest of society, which is obviously much different than what this article is getting at. But I, I thought it was really interesting. And he goes on to mention, I think this paragraph is fascinating. He says, evidence from experimental economics shows that defections are common to situations in which people face collective risks. Economists use public goods games to measure how people behave in various scenarios to lower collective risks, such as from climate change or a pandemic, and to prevent the loss of public and private goods. And so he talks about how COVID is you know, much too big for any of us to really get a collective sampling of this. But he says, don't abandon all hope. And some of these experiments, the groups win and successfully prevent the losses associated with the collective risks. He gives some of the reasons why. He says, for those of us in the United States, these uh, conditions are out of reach when it comes to COVID-19, obviously, because the scale is so big. He says, even if these factors were achievable, they still require the very cooperative behavior that is in short supply. The scale of the pandemic is simply too great for any of this to be possible. And then he goes on to talk about if we could actually promote cooperation with some sort of moral enhancement, that might actually be, in his mind, the key to us actually beating this thing. And I'd, I'd love to know, you know, neither of us are scientists, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, but how does that idea just in presentation, how does that strike you? It strikes me as scary. How's that? Yeah. Sound? It strikes me as a side effects, right? You've we've all watched TV where the, uh, the miracle drug comes on and then half the commercial is side effects, but also right, right. it just, uh, I know the slippery slope argument is not always a good argument, but this does feel like a slippery slope. Like, okay, where does this lead us to? Where does this go? Who gets to decide what the morality is that we're shooting for with these pills? Whatever else it might be. I guess anytime it is, uh, and again, this is not something I've ever really considered. I didn't even know this was kind of stuff was possible, but, um, you know, anytime we're talking about trying to influence people's, uh, chemistry to alter their behavior it feels uh that that feels pretty uh pretty scary that feels pretty sci-fi movie to me and, I, and well, that, we, do, we do that with clinical depression and bipolar disorder i know i know we do and, and he goes on to talk about that right he said oxytocin the chemical that among other things can induce labor and increase the bond between mother and child may cause a person to be more empathetic and altruistic more giving and right. generous and he goes on so i do get that i do get that um this feels like a different level to me and I'm having trouble putting exact reasoning to why it just feels, it feels like a different level. How's this strike you? You've said you've thought about this before and this kind of stuff is interesting to you. Oh, I already take them regularly. So yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> That's where all your altruism comes from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People are like, wait, this is you on this drug. Yikes. Um, <laughs> yeah. His next sort of category, the heading is moral enhancement as an alternative to vaccines. I, I, I think, I think that's even probably you, my guess is you would find that even more frightening, right? Like to not vaccinate and to use these as a, uh, as a replacement here. I'll, I'll read the last Two paragraphs it says another challenge is that the defectors who need moral enhancement are also the least likely to sign up for it, which was going to be exactly my point. Who, mm. Who's going to like raise their hand and identify like, oh, I'm morally deficient. That's sign awesome. me up for a drug. I don't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, as some have argued, a solution would be to make moral enhancement compulsory or administer it secretly. There you go. Oh, That's terrifying. Gosh perhaps via the water supply. These actions require weighing other values. Does the good of covertly dosing the public with the drug that would change people's behavior outweigh individuals' autonomy to choose whether or not to participate? Does the good associated with wearing a mask outweigh an individual's autonomy not to wear one? A scenario in which the government forces 
an immunity booster upon everyone is plausible. And the military has been forcing enhancements like vaccines or uppers upon soldiers for a long time. Again, soldier, civilian, very different scenarios. Right. A scenario in which the government forces a morality booster upon everyone is far-fetched, but a strategy like this one could be a way out of this pandemic, a future outbreak or the suffering associated with climate change. That's why we should be thinking of it now. My guess is those last two paragraphs really seal the deal for you, Brian, that you are yes, not totally a fan of the proposal. But why, though? <laughs> I, I, rather than just saying it's scary or I don't like it or feel sci-fi, like what's, what's underneath why that makes you uncomfortable? Oh, the second that we've got scientists or the government putting stuff, co- once they went covertly here on us, uh, that's that is not something I'd, be, I'd sign up for. Obviously, you're not signing. Well, you up already for it. have with Facebook, right? I mean, that's you're already being monitored covertly with a lot of I the can, technology you use. I I can get off of that at any point, right? If you're putting drugs and and other chemical inducing like other change agents into the water supply without me knowing, uh, that is uh, something that I can't avoid. And now who knows, you know, I, I've probably shown my cards over the my 18 months here. I don't have a high degree of respect for our government. So who knows how else this is going to be used mm. in order to. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would not go down this road one bit, um, although, you know. Uh, he does. His original point is valid that that we do have a problem that we've got such uh, struggle to do what is for the common good, as you will. Uh, but, yeah, I don't like his solution here. That is more than fair, I think. Well, coming up next, the importance of and the forgotten political message of Christianity. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the forgotten political message of Christianity. And then we'll be joined by Pastor Daniel Hill, author of the new book, White Lies. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Along with Brian Fromm, you can find us a bunch of places. So many places. Do you want to tell them, Brian? They're tired of hearing it from me, right? Lots of places. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Lots of, as you said, robust conversation going on there. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. You can find us online, 1160hope.com. And the podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. We're grateful for those of you who do that. But yeah, all those places. I'm sure there's more. Alexa, there's other ways. You can find us wherever you want, really. <laughs> Maybe not wherever they want, but uh, yeah, we'll go with that. If also, just to say it out loud, you're not going to want to miss the interview that's coming up after this segment. Pastor Daniel Hill, author of the brand new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems That Divide Us. I think he's absolutely brilliant. He did a video for us a couple of years ago with Dave Ferguson, a conversation about race. And uh, his previous book, Wide Awake, is one I've led Bible studies with. I've recommended to other pastors. So I, I'm super excited for us to have a conversation with him because I think what he's going to bring to this conversation is not only like really rich and theologically robust, but it's also like a lived experience, which is what I, I just appreciate about his perspective so much. I found this article a couple of days ago. And uh, it does kind of point towards something you and I have referenced a number of times, especially this whole idea of and. And we've had people from the and campaign. They got a new book coming out. But this headline simply reads the importance of and the forgotten political message of Christianity. Why don't you uh, get us into it? Yeah, Religion News. uh, This is by Diana Butler Bass. She begins. Religion News Service was quick to point out that Kamala Harris 
The newly selected Democratic vice presidential candidate is both biracial and bi-religious, black and Asian, Christian and Hindu. Over the coming weeks, it's important to remember the and of Kamala Harris's experience. That little word and is a conjunction which, as the dictionary puts it, connects things that are to be taken jointly. Hmm. We forget how important and is this small, modest word. In the case of Senator Harris, she writes, the and acts as a bridge between identities that most people consider distinct. Race and ethnicity, faith and religion, these are humanity's unbridgeable divides. When we imagine these things, we picture boundaries, walls, borders, not unity, not what we share. There is a potent political message in her and a candidate whose life embodies a bridge counterposed to a president who based his previous campaign on building a wall. This election is about choosing between bridges and walls. Do we open to span that which seems impossible to connect or strengthen the fortifications that separate? So, uh, I, you you may disagree with uh, her conclusions here, but what do you just believe there? What do you think about her premise there, Ian? I I think the the notion of and is something that honestly we've talked about a number of times on this show, and you know plenty of people have disagreed. I think with even the conclusions that you and I have drawn. We did a series at Community a few years ago. I think we just called it and. Is that right? Where it was like conviction and compassion. Can, can coexist in the same space. We, we talked about uh, Jesus confronting the woman caught in adultery, who, by the way, the man wasn't there, which is, you know, yep. that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. But he, he both shows compassion to her, but then also tells her, you know, go and sin no more. And this, this and campaign that I've been following for a couple months now and their new book, uh, I think is remarkable at helping at least at the very, at the very least create dialogue around things as this author is saying often are seen as like opposite ends of the spectrum or topics that don't deserve to be in the same sentence. And I think the more, especially in this digital reality where it seems like the tendency for us to kind of more solidify or hunker down in our echo chambers, our confirmation biases that, you know, not only is my team and my guy and my camp, right, but everything that your team and your camp and your guy says is evil. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of that rhetoric play out. Don't you think? I do. I like her premise here that we as Christians are to be bridge builders, that we as Christians are to be um, looking for uh, some commonality. Like I do. I, I appreciate this about the article. I disagree with her where she says uh, President Trump is this way and Kamala Harris is somehow the the opposite picture of this. Like I, I think she's letting into her biases here. Yeah. Uh, on what she wants to see happen in the election. So I would say in this article, I think she makes some really good foundational points that I would agree with about, um, you know what, even in, in differences, we're seeing each other with uh, in the image of God and how do we bridge build, how do we build bridges? I would suggest that I think both political parties and both sets of candidates do the same thing. And so therefore I would not go with her where she goes that this is an election. If you're for Donald Trump, you're for, uh, you know, you're for walls. If you vote for Biden and Harris, you're for a bridge. I, I'm not willing right. to go there. The greater point that she's making, I do think has some merit to it, right? It's out, like the Christianity we, uh, we know maybe culturally versus the Christianity of scripture looks a little different. And we, and we need to wrestle with this Democrats and Republicans being children of God uh, and, and this kinds of things. Uh, so therefore I think she makes some good points there. Let me, uh, let me just read a little more what she writes. She says church membership requires adherence to creeds in particular dogma that proclaims Christian superiority over and against others and lesser prophets and teachers bridge is not the infrastructure associated in popular culture with 
Christian wall, fortress, moat. Yes, bridge, not really. This would have been a big surprise for the early Christians, those who took up the new faith in the years following Jesus' death. They proclaimed a creed, but it wasn't the familiar creed that most Christians know from church. The first creed was thus, for you are all children of God and the spirit. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in spirit. If these words sound familiar, they appear in Galatians 3.28, a verse in a letter by Paul, and one of the oldest texts in the New Testament. In a recent book, The Forgotten Creed, biblical scholar Stephen Patterson argues that Paul did not write them. Rather, Paul borrowed this phrase from an even older source, most likely the first Christian baptismal liturgy. When new followers joined the Jesus movement, the words were repeated to those about about to be baptized. You are all children of God. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female, for you all are one in the Spirit. This was powerful. The ancient Roman world was even more divided than ours. It was a society of hierarchies where certain ethnicities were privileged. People who were being free or who were free were deemed fully human and slaves considered as beasts and men were always superior to women. Bigotry, slavery, and sexism were the coinage of the Roman Empire. Jesus challenged all of this by welcoming sinners and outcasts, by eating with people deemed unclean and insisting that those who were last would be first. The original believers embraced this radical social message, something we know because they were killed by the state as traitors. They were, as Patterson says, quote, committed to giving up old identities falsely acquired on the basis of baseless assumptions, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, and they and declared themselves to be children of God. The first Christian creed, the long forgotten creed, wasn't about God, it was about us, who we are who matters and who deserves dignity. The first creed was a statement of human solidarity. The Jesus movement grew from a community who dared to proclaim that, quote, there is no us or them. We are all children of God, writes Patterson. It's about solidarity, not cultural obliteration. We are all children of God. You and your neighbor and immigrants and believers of other faiths, Democrats and Republicans, and, and, and we are all children of God. It doesn't sound like any Christianity we know, but it is what Jesus preached, what Paul shared in his letters. And it is what the first Christians gave their lives for, a world of human dignity and equality for children of God where walls are torn down and bridges built in their steed. If that's, uh, and if that's what a Christian America could mean, then count me in. I know we only have less than a minute, Brian, but thoughts, observations, pushback? Yeah, the only pushback I'd give is I, I want to be careful not to say that what we believe and you believe and everyone believes doesn't matter in terms like there's no difference between them. Right. Jesus had some some exclusive claims to make. But I think as a larger picture, what she's saying here, I think as we interact with one another, as we interact with people who don't believe what we do, who may not think the way we do or vote the way that we do. I think her overall point about we've got to be bridge builders. We've got to be people looking for commonality and, and, and loving people uh, who aren't like us. And it's not, I think is powerful. I think the church has a great opportunity to look different right now than the rest of our culture. And, and that's why I think what she writes, uh, if we embrace it, uh, could have some power to it. And, and just to say it out loud, not every article or story that Brian and I read, we agree with wholesale or at all. And so we engage and invite conversation. If you want to weigh in on Facebook, that's posted over on the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Joining us, though, for the rest of the hour, and I'm absolutely thrilled, Pastor Daniel Hill, author of the new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems That Divide Us. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. 
and wherever it is you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that does help us out a whole lot. And I am absolutely thrilled to have for the rest of the hour, pastor and author Daniel Hill. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thank you. So glad to be here with you. Thanks for being here. Could could you just take a minute or two or five, however long you want, and just introduce <laughs> the audience? Um, sure. Um, pastor here in the Hubble Park neighborhood of Chicago. Been at this particular church for 17 and a half years. Um, grew up in Chicago all my life. Uh, son of a pastor so and a scholar, so I've been in this world all my life, although there was kind of the inevitable straying away in high school and college. But um, I was part of some dot-com, series of dot-coms when I graduated college that brought me out near a big church in the Chicago suburbs, Willow Creek Community Church. And it was mm-hmm. kind of there that I came back to faith when I was in my around 22 years old and ended up working there for most of my 20s and then uh, left to plant this church when I was 29. So doing that, that's 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 my day job now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh- you just have a book coming out here soon called White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us, that we're really excited to talk to you about. But I'm curious, as a pastor in your, your church, River City Church, uh, it's a multi-ethnic congregation, like you said, in Humble Park. Uh, as you've cultivated the culture there, what are some steps or things you've done to make it a multi-ethnic church? We've talked to lots of pastors about how that requires great intentionality. I'm just curious about the history of your church that's gotten you to that point. Yeah, you know, that was its own whole long journey. I mean, I think I think one of the kind of clumsy dimensions of this that many of us were in all white spaces experience is that once we realize that we're in largely white homogenous spaces and we kind of long for more diversity, I mean, there's a lot of it we don't understand early on. So often what we try to do is invite people of different backgrounds and experiences to kind of join us in the way we do our church. Um, and while I don't think there's anything wrong with that fundamentally, I think we should always be hospitable no matter what we're doing. I think there's something very different between kind of doing church in the ways that I kind of subscribe to the white cultural norms um, versus learning how to kind of develop a new type of culture that sees and experiences God through the lenses and perspectives and experiences of different kinds of types of cultural backgrounds. And uh, that was the big sharp learning curve for me. You know, we were dabbling with diversity at Willow when I was even there, but mm-hmm. when we started River City, it was with really with an intention. I, in fact, I flat out said to God, if I'm not able to develop a culture diverse leadership team where we can kind of do this together, I don't actually want to plant a church because I don't think that I can do anything that's just different than all the other attempts I've already made. So I think that was pretty big differences. Um, you know, I had to kind of develop a team that would help me even understand what I wasn't seeing and you know, why is, you know, what are, what are the enormous differences between how white Christians see God and black Christians see God at which, which would kind of start with the polls, you know, I mean, that's the way the white church and the black church is organized tends to be pretty different. And so, um, so I think that's been the real, you know, that's very dissonant to do that, but it's also very rewarding um, because there's inevitably a whole lot of things you don't see when you only know your own cultural frame. And so Mm. I'd say that's the, the most unique part of my own church experience. So one of the things that Brian and I have been trying to, not always successfully, but the last few months in particular, especially around the topic of race, mm-hmm. we've been trying to really assume a posture of of learner, but even maybe before learner, listener, lamenter. Uh, and we found, and I've said a number of times on the show, you know, Brian and I are both white, straight men. So in a lot of ways, in terms of structures and how we identify and how we see the world, you also are, you're, you're a white man, you're a pastor in the city. And you've written not only this new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us, but you've also written the book that I've written and led or read, I've read and led studies, uh, White Awake. And I'm, and I'm curious, what mm. significance do you think, 
do you bring as someone who's coming from a white perspective, speaking to issues of race and racial systems that divide us? Oh, yeah, thanks. I mean, it's a good question. Um, you know, I actually think there is a lot of risk in ever appearing as if you're leading the conversation as a white person. That's certainly something I don't want to do. I'd never planned on doing stuff like this. Um, as I, you know, it began in my 20s, early to mid 20s, and then um, well into the kind of this, you know, my church experience here. And so I developed some kind of key relationships with key mentor relationships with especially some established black leaders in the evangelical community, kind of which I had always been part of. And so I, there was never a point, even to this day, there was never a point where I was trying to say, Hey, I think I've got something to offer to this. That's never how it worked. Um, but as I kind of surrendered to their work and continue to listen and learn from them, they actually started to say to me, Hey, you know, a lot of the work we do is racial awakening work in white spaces. And we feel confident to be able to share from our perspective, but we actually think that you're one of them. <laughs> That's a, like there's, there's something to, to you've experienced from kind of the inside of like what it feels like to come up against these conversations and feel defensive or feel scared or feel confused, feel disoriented. And um, we've appreciated watching you over the years wrestle with that. And we think you're at the place now where your own autobiography could be helpful with other white folks who are wrestling with this. And so we'd actually like to be the ones to position you you know, to kind of tell that story as part of the work we're doing. And so that's where White Awake came from was mm -hmm. them asking me to become more clear about my own testimonial. And as a Christian, as a white Christian straight guy, as you're saying, um, learning to kind of come to grips with the system of race and how to make sense of it, particularly from a Christian perspective, because there's, there's historically been a dearth of resources within the Christian community. It's often a much more robust conversation in secular spaces, which creates another degree of confusion for Christians that, um, how to think about this theologically and from a biblical mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah. In your book, you talk a lot about white supremacy and I, I'm just curious, uh, how would you define that? How do you define white supremacy and maybe how do you, uh, that, that's a very charged phrase these days. So how do you mm -hmm. talk to people about that to kind of help them better understand what you mean by that phrase? Yeah. I mean, I start off by recognizing until you said, I do realize this charge, even still after all these years, it feels funny even for me to say it. it. I think some of it, we've been so conditioned to think like typically the way we think of white supremacy is we've been taught to associate with the most violent acts possible to come with that. Right. Mm. So we, we almost instinctively picture the KKK or marches or white supremacist rallies, you know, or violence being enacted upon people because of this. And so, I mean, I think that's just an instinctive reality for any of us who are white to like universally reject anything that feels like it's white supremacy and certainly to reject any possibility that we carry that within us, if that's what it means. Right. So I think we have to honor the fact that we've got been kind of conditioned to think in a certain kind of a way. And so then we almost have to unhook from that and go back to its actual definition. And really it's, it's not even a behavior. White supremacy is an ideology. It's a way mm. of viewing the world. Um, and actually, even though the term's loaded, it's a great definition because the word supremacy doesn't communicate violence. It just, it's a belief, right? To think of something as supreme is to think of it as superior. Right. And so white supremacy is a way of looking at the world that says uh, white people and anything white is what's most superior or most supreme. And then it's kind of built on the phrase, you know, more and more people have been exposed to this phrase, anti-blackness, particularly in the kind of era we're in, you know, on the other side of George Floyd and such. So anti-blackness is really just the reverse of what white supremacy is. Anti-blackness is the notion that of all the human, all the human beings that are out there, black people are most inferior. And so that's what white supremacy does. It paints, it paints a picture of a racial hierarchy that says white people are at the top, black people are at the bottom, everybody else is in between. And it, and it measures human value according to the proximity to whiteness and to blackness. And so it's a concept that everybody should be, I think, familiar with, but it's one especially Christians should be familiar with because 
you know, the Bible is so clear that human dignity and value is not based on our hair type or skin type or where we're born, right? It's based on the fact that we're creating the image and likeness of God. Mm. The, the phrase Imago Dei captures that, right? That that's who we are is valuable because of what God has made us. And so white supremacy, more than anything for a Christian, what we have to realize is a direct assault on the God of the Bible. It says that the Imago Dei is not what names and values people, that it's where you fall in the racial hierarchy that names and values people. And so even if it's something you don't personally subscribe to, which most would say we don't, it's something we have to be fiercely aware of because it's in the air we breathe. It's in the systems and structures that make up this world. It, it values whiteness as superior and it, it devalues blackness as inferior. And so it's a term that any caring human being just got to be really familiar with. Goodness, that's so helpful. If you're just joining us, that's Pastor Daniel Hill, author of the new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems That Divide Us. He's sticking around for the rest of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of quick points of house cleaning. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there. You can send us messages if you have ideas for future shows. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that does somehow magically help us out a whole lot. And I'm thrilled that Pastor Daniel Hill will be joining us for the rest of the hour. He's the author of a number of books, his newest, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems That Divide Us. And I'm here looking at your notes, Daniel, and you mentioned this idea of being woke as potentially problematic. This is actually a topic that Brian and I have covered a number of times in the last year and a half or so of this. What do you, what do you mean exactly by the dangers of this word woke? Yeah, thanks. It's a good, it's a good one. It's really getting to the posture of the white person who's going to take race seriously, take the ideology of white supremacy seriously that we talked about in the last segment. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the helpful thing to do is like pull a couple words out of there. One that I think is good. One that I think is dangerous. Um, the conscious part of woke is something that should be embraced. I think to the degree that we can continue as white people to say, there's a system, there's a construct, there's an ideology, there's a way of organizing the world around race that is very real and very dangerous to all of us, but I don't fully see it. Maybe I don't hardly at all see it. That's the positive kind of language mm. of like growing increasingly conscious uh, choose biblical language. I, you know, I use this a lot in White Awake. I build on it in White Lies. You know, I, I think one of the most consistent transformational motifs in the New Testament is moving from blindness to sight, right? That God yeah. helps us move from things we don't see. And, you know, I, I think of Nicodemus in John chapter three, when Jesus says, nobody can see the kingdom unless they're born again. And Jesus links transformation. Mm. You know, the kingdom is kind of the way of life in God, right? Like nobody can see it without the revealing power of God. And so to me, that's like the language of consciousness. I think consciousness is really good. Um, I, I, I would mm. say there's another thread that lives right alongside of it that's super dangerous and can actually undermine everything. And I think there is this, this temptation, I would even go so far as to say a need in kind of the psychology of most of us who are white, where we, we search for what the end point is. Um, what's the point where once I get here, I've arrived. Once I get here, I'm kind of deputized as one of the good guys, mm-hmm. one of the ones who's with it. One of them's on the right side of this, one of the ones who's an ally. You know, the, the words change. Woke is just one of the many words. But there's this notion of like wanting to demonstrate that I get it and that I've arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is, is super dangerous. For one, I mean, it's what's under that is pride, which is always the most dangerous posture no matter what work you're doing, right? Humility continues to mm-hmm. embrace right. the need to learn and be curious and understand more than you understand to see what you can see. Um, but there's kind of a streak of pride that's pretty typical 
And at a day-to-day level, what you see is you see somebody like any one of us on the call who begins by saying, I don't understand this. I need to understand it. But then within a short amount of time, we suddenly deputize ourselves as the experts on this. We kind of walk with an air of confidence. We no longer think we could be complicit with the very problems that we're trying to understand. Um, and so we can pretty quickly shift out of the mode that we began um, in, in the hopes. And I think it comes from this play. We just don't want to be called racist. We don't want to be seen as one of the backwards people, right? So it's not that it's all bad, what we're hungering for, but I think it's almost unnatural, but needed. We have to kind of embrace this reality that we're never going to fully understand this thing because the system is socialized in our favor mm. and it's socialized to kind of harm others. And so um, we're going to have to continue to kind of go against the current to understand it. And uh, so therefore, aspiring to be woke or aspiring to have arrived or aspiring to be one of the ones who get it is actually a dangerous aspiration because it takes you in the opposite direction of ongoing humility and blindness to sight. Along those same lines, you say uh, prioritizing diversity. When we prioritize diversity, you say is counterintuitive, counterintuitively not helpful. And that might surprise some people because diversity often seems like the goal, right? And so why do you say that prioritizing right. diversity uh, is counterintuitive, counterintuitively maybe problematic? <laughs> yeah, it kind of points to this entire, um, uh, uh, what would be the right word I'm looking for, right? Like we all, we all got hoodwinked a little bit, yeah. right? Like um, it, like so if, if we start in <laughs> church work, for instance, I'm sure this is a conversation you all have had. I mean, this just seems like it's true in every church setting. I actually think it's true in most business settings, but the language in church is a little more familiar. Like once a white church starts to realize they're white and that there's not a lot of people of color in that church, the first quote that almost you're always going to hear is from Martin Luther King Jr. who said the most segregated yes. hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sundays, yep. right? Um, and, and he did say that, and he was highlighting that racial segregation is one of the primary indicators of the problem of race. Um, the, the, the missing context though, though, is that he wasn't suggesting that therefore the answer to the problem of race is becoming more diverse. He was pointing to that as symptomatic mm. of the problem, not the problem itself, right? So if you're, if, if you treat racial segregation as the problem and then diversity is the answer, then you've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> if that's like, if you go from hundred percent white to 80% yeah. white, I mean, you, you've mostly achieved what you were going for. Right. Um, but if you, if you say, no, mm. he was saying, the segregation is, is symptomatic of the problem. What's the problem? Well, as we talked about in the first segment, the problem is this ideology of white supremacy that has led to, like, how does a neighborhood become all white? How does a church become all white? Like, how, right, there, there are forces behind those questions. It doesn't happen accidentally. It's, it's a product of a, a few hundred years worth of history within our country, right? And so the problem is not racial segregation. That's, that is problematic, but it's symptomatic of the deeper problem, which is race, which is the system of white supremacy. So if we treat diversity as a means to an end, it's very powerful, right? We're always going to have more luck mm. in a diverse setting trying to, to challenge the problem of white supremacy than a foreign homogenous setting. But if you treat diversity as an end instead of a means to an end, um, then it's inevitable what will happen is that those of us who are white will finally exhale and it becomes a little bit more diverse. And all the people of color there will go, that's it? <laughs> like, now that we're a little more diverse, we think we got it, right? So it creates this, like, huge chasm of kind of a sense of hmm. whether or not we've actually made progress towards the problem or not. So it's a powerful tool when it's a means. It's a dangerous endeavor when it becomes an end in of itself. That's incredibly helpful. One of the things I was really excited about having you on the show about is, you know, because Brian and I are also pastors and whether it's in the pulpit or social media or even with this show, um, a criticism that he and I have both heard is why, why are you even talking about racism, pastor? Shouldn't you just be focusing on the gospel? Shouldn't you right. just be preaching the gospel or preaching Jesus and, and stop being distracted by what maybe they see as this peripheral issue of race? What, what do you say to, to that 
particular position? Yeah, well, the first thing I do is try to point to a huge psychic break that most conservative Christians won't even realize that they've subscribed to. Um, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's almost universal in conservative Christian spaces that abortion is seen as a very dangerous social problem, one that Christians have to organize around, you know, to, to say possibly to be pro-life, right? Um, and you don't ever hear... You don't ever hear a church say we fight for pro-life and, and one of the congregants go, well, why can't you just talk about the gospel? Mm-hmm. Like th- th- there's, there's no break in that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it's rooted actually in the same problem as race. Like, it, and I, th- I understandably so, right. Right. That it's, it's an Imago Dei Im- issue. It's an image of God issue. There's this natural inclination to say, if God cares about the sovereignty of every human being, then when a human being is in the mother's womb, mm-hmm. a Christian who cares about the gospel should care about that baby. Right. None, none of which I disagree with. Race is, race is the same progression. White supremacy, as we defined in the first session, is an assault on the, the personhood and the humanity of, of human beings. And really, I'm not trying to pit against each other, but there's far a, a far greater number of people who are killed, who are dehumanized, who are put in really critical spaces because of this assault on the dehumanization that a set of lies around human value has created. And so it's like, that's why I call it like a psychic break. Like if, if you're pro-life, there's actually no other endeavor that you should probably care more about than the problem of white supremacy because it's like literally the exact same progression of biblical mm. thought. And so that's why I almost think of it as like a break. It's like, I don't actually think we need to be convinced that white supremacy is an assault on the gospel. I think we have to ask ourselves, how did we get conditioned to not see it as an assault on the gospel? Because we're comfortable seeing it that way, you know, on other key issues of life. That's incredibly helpful. If you're just joining us, that's Pastor Daniel Hill, author of the new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems That Divide Us. He's going to join us for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. You know what? You can just Google us. I'm sure you'll find it. It's there. Facebook, podcast, website, all of that. Any interaction is really, really helpful and really, really grateful. Just to say it out loud, by the way, Pastor Daniel Hill, author of the new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Before I jump into my next question, just want to say how much I appreciate you and your influence on our church specifically Mm -hmm. and for taking the time that you have to join us today has been so helpful. I'm so grateful for you. And I, I would I would love to ask you a question about a way forward because we've spent two segments really talking about. All right. What, what are some of the inner workings of the problem? What are some of the ways that maybe the system is is broken? And you also what I appreciate about you is you're a practitioner. You're mm-hmm. leading real people in real space and time with real difficulty and tension and nuance. What, what are some ways forward as as you see it, as you're pastoring, as you're leading, as you're writing? What, how, how can we take some steps forward? Yeah, thanks. You know, maybe I'll answer that categorically if that's all right, because, you know, one category of answers would be what are practical things we can do to try to confront, expose, dismantle it, something I think is important as well. But in a lot of ways, I feel like that's probably the third category in the progression. (laughs) Um, I I think that there's a couple of Mm -hmm. kind of foundational shifts that have to happen for those of us who are white, particularly those of us who are white and Christians, you know, but I think these are broader than that as well. Um, So the first one, it's it's a a big subject matter. It's one we've already been talking about the first two subjects, the first two clips, but um, I think just coming to grips with what is white supremacy, what is the system of race? And I would say those are pretty synonymous. Um, you know, we don't need to be experts at it, but we have to have a decent sense of what it is. And I've, I've tried to give a fast definition, which I think is accurate, that it's a set of lies, a narrative that organizes the world, organizes society around this belief that white people are are fundamentally superior, that black people are fundamentally inferior, and then constantly broadcasts messages around that. 
um, why whiteness is what should be um, the I- ideal for everyone to aspire to, why blackness is the most dangerous and the threats, everything, why, you know, Asian Americans, Latinx, different kind of groups, like how their the story about them is dependent on how proximate they're perceived to be to the blackness or whiteness. I think just that first category of like, just having a sense of what this ideology is, how it expresses itself, you know, how it's, it's, you know, you can't like the, for instance, we're in Chicago, right? Uh, many of us. And, but this is true in almost every big city, like every big city is racist segregated. Why? Well, it's because the storyline of white supremacy was part of the way that city was organized, where the most valuable real estate mm-hmm. areas were, mm-hmm. um, where white people lived. And there was all kind of formal laws and practices that prohibited black people from being able to live in those spaces. And right, that's just one example that like, that's what, that's the language of systemic, you know, that um, uh, when you look at schools, you know, generally speaking, like white kids get much better access to all the resources they need. Black kids get the least amount of access. How did that happen? You know, it's, it's, you, you trace the threads back. You always, within any field, you discover that white supremacy has been the single greatest formative force in every single industry, every single field. So I'd say that's the first big category is we just have to become knowledgeable, you know, of the history of it, the present day mm-hmm. expression of it. And I think the second the second category becomes more theological. So this is especially for people of faith. But um, I, I really do believe this. I think until a white Christian can not only say this, but actually believe it to the core of their being, they're not going to be much helpful to the movement. I think for until a white Christian can say to love Jesus is to hate white supremacy – like until they can comfortably say that with conviction, um, the kind of how-to questions won't matter too much because you won't have enough conviction to like really press in the way you're going to need to press in and kind of combat the very serious forces that kind of sustain white supremacy. So I think that's a big statement to make, but a simple statement once you've done the work on the first one, if white supremacy really is a declaration of human value, which I believe it is a lie about human value, then it's a direct assault on the God of the Bible who says human value is tied to the fact that I created them in their mother's womb, you know, before they were born. That's where human value comes mm-hmm. from, that they reflect mm-hmm. my image, right? Um, so white supremacy, it's, I think of it as Colossians 1 language where the Apostle Paul, you know, describing the majestic beauty of Jesus Christ as he's the image of the invisible God, you know, the one who's reconciling all things to himself, seen and unseen, heaven and on earth. But Paul says in Colossians 1, for the purpose that Christ could be supreme over all things. And that's another reason why I think the term white supremacy is a really helpful term to use. It identifies itself in its very definition as a challenger to the throne of God, right? It's, its very intention is to displace God and to rename human beings according to the caste system of race. And so that's linked to the first one, but I think it's really its own second category, right? There has to be this kind of theological shift where we say, wow, this thing really is trying to take supremacy away from Jesus and reorganize human value. And I'm not just, there's just no way I could ever sit back. There's no way I could be a Christian and sit back idly while this thing continues to work in society. Like once those two are in place, Mm -hmm. then you get to the third category of like, what do we do? (laughs) What do we do about that? Right. And that's really where my second book that you guys have highlighted, the white lies, the newer one, white lies really is kind of assuming those first two are in motion where there's a little bit of a sense that white supremacy is real. There's a sense that it's directly in contest with Jesus, you know, and, you know, that's where I explore nine practices for ways we can step into it. But I'm also realistic about the fact that, you know, if somebody's still early on in those first two questions, um, something like white lies is going to be kind of heavy because it's, it's hard to do this work if you don't have a deep, deep conviction that it's one of the greatest threats facing the known world and that as Christians, we have to be signed up to enlist against it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Daniel, I'm curious, uh, 
as this whole conversation we're having, but also all that you see going on culturally, how would you suggest that parents talk to kids? At what age do you start having these conversations? How do you uh, even navigate these questions with your children? I mean, openly, I think, I mean, I, I know it's scary, but um, so one of the phrases I use a lot is the narrative of racial hierarchy. Um, that's a phrase that Brian Stevenson's popularized. If you haven't heard of him, that's that movie, Just mm-hmm. Mercy, which he's just a fantastic voice on this stuff. But it's his way to describe the operating system of white supremacy, that there's this storyline that says white people, it's really the same thing. I've just been saying it's a, it's a narrative. It's a story that says white people are more valuable. Black people are less valuable. So I've taught my kids that phrase, narrative of racial hierarchy. Like they knew that by the time they were four or five years old. So my kids now are 10 and eight. We talk about the narrative of racial hierarchy all the time. And I ask them to show me in the world mm-hmm. where there are signals about the supremacy of whiteness and the inferiority of blackness. Um, not even about do you, is it, do you believe it? Not believe like, I, I want them just to like see the world and to see how the system of race is at work in the world. And so they're comfortable It'll, at 10 years old and eight years old. They're comfortable. Like it, they're fluid even with that terminology. Like that's it. Just that phrase, the never racial hierarchy, um, which I like that phrase. because It just mm-hmm. says it plainly racial hierarchy, right? That there's a, there's something at the top, something at the bottom. And so they can pretty plainly, even in their school, they can pretty plainly see subtle messages that communicate the inferiority of blackness and the superiority of whiteness. And so I'm not even trying to like radicalize them. I'm just trying to help them, you know, become conscious of that reality. And that is, a yeah. son and daughter of God that, you know, as they get older and older, they're going to have to kind of think through what to do about that. So I, I don't, I don't think there's any reason. I mean, black kids can't have the luxury of not thinking about this from early on when the world starts saying that they're less than their parents got to start this conversation soon. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't think there's any reason why white parents shouldn't. Right. Right. One of the things that we like to ask guests as we wrap up, and I know that we only have about a minute or so left, but in light of everything that we've been talking about and the realities that maybe for some people listening, They've been grappling with these realities for a long time. And for others, I want to recognize maybe you're hearing some of these terms for the very first time. And that's okay. Like lean in, keep learning, keep listening. I'd love to know in the minute or so we have left, are, are you hopeful? With all you see going on in the world and in your own church and your own family and communities, are, are you hopeful? You know, I, it's it's a mix. I mean, I, I, I think there's reasons to not be hopeful when you look at it with plain sight. Um, I also I think we didn't talk about this much, but I think the system of race has got evil behind it. I think there's evil intentions. And so I think of, you know, John one, for mm-hmm. instance, when it says darkness tried to overcome the light, but couldn't. Right. Jesus overcame the darkness. And so yeah. I, I, I fundamentally believe Jesus will prevail in the end. And the light, I think, is the truth about who we are and the systems that suppress people. So I'm hopeful in that sense that Jesus is ultimately going to vanquish mm-hmm. evil and be victorious. And so. I don't know when that'll happen, but I I do believe that it's evil, the system, and that Jesus will eventually vanquish it. That's such a good word. If you're just joining us, that's Pastor Daniel Hill. He's the author of a new book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. He's also authored White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white. And he's the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church right here in Chicago. You can learn more at PastorDanielHill.com. Pastor Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was an honor. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.